Hello again and welcome everybody to another episode of Voices from SA. Thank you for joining me today wherever you are. My guest this week is Dr. Sitembile Mbete. She is a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at the University of Pretoria. The subject of her PhD, South Africa's two first terms on the United Nations Security Council, the first in 2007-8 and the second 2011-12. She is also a political commentator and a fellow of the Johannesburg-based think tank Democracy Works. So we chatted a little bit about South Africa on the global stage, both internationally and on the continent, but also then touched on the state of our political institutions, parliament, government, and the parliamentary parties as we approach the May the 8th elections. We also touched on the crisis facing the ANC and the party's attempts to balance unity and accountability. Uh, so please now enjoy my chat with Sitembile. Thanks so, so much uh, for your time. Uh, unfortunately, we Thanks weren't able to. You had some kind of student emergency, yes. unfortunately. Um, um, I won't ask for the details of that, but I hope it resolved itself. No, know. it did. And I think that, you know, and I suppose with all the stuff that we're going to be talking about, um, it's so emblematic of the time that we're living in um, because a lot of our students have had to register really late because of funding issues. Mm. So NESFA's not putting out money on time, yeah. um, but also uh, students who had historic debt. Um, That's a big issue, isn't and it? So, yeah, so last week was basically... Um, the the final week for students to have to settle, their to settle all their registration things so that and their know, debts will pay their, their debts money and things yeah. um, and the university has made various arrangements for them mm. um, but but yes I think that you know how that weighs on the psychology of the students of the student, body. but also the you know I think that what we're seeing a lot of students going through is a reflection of, of what's happening in broader society, right? So um, a lot of our students come from uh, families that are in serious economic distress. Mm. And even families where there was a working parent and uh, a parent has now been retrenched or uh, has lost a job or hasn't been able to get a job that, you know, after being employed for several years um, because of the economic situation that we're in. Uh, a lot of students are also needing to, are, are being expected to help out at home with their, um, with their NESFAS money, so with their money that they get oh from the man. state. It's become like a family um, it's income. It's become like a family income, Not yes. Not a student because if loan. And well, so, not an education loan. And non-education loan. Oh so you've got students sort of cutting... Uh, their expenses yes. on campus in order to be able to send money home. Wow. So, you know, there's so much that we're seeing on campuses mm. that is symptomatic of a broader crisis. I mean, I heard a hectic stat the other day uh, from the former statistician general, uh, Paddy Lohotla, who said that of in South Africa, 30% of mothers are married. 60% of fathers are married. Hmm. <laughs> and so what that indicates is that the majority of children are growing up in mother-headed households, um, in, 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 in single-parent households run by their moms. And so our when we then think, and so many of the policies that get made are made with the assumption of a two-income household mm. uh, or made with the assumption of two caregivers yeah. um, for a particular child. And that, that includes the way in which we fund our universities, you know, the way in which we provide student funding is that the assumption is that there is a significant amount of parental support or others or family support huh. uh, to uh, uh, 
and and what the state is then doing is just subsidizing but what we are realizing with our students is that there are many families that actually have very that, that rely entirely on the state hmm. for either through a social grant or a pension or as you say student this nest and then the loan, student uh, loans Nesmas, um, Used to, are used to uh, keep families or, going, or, not just for those students. Mm. Um, and so, I've never considered that. I have to say, yeah, sure. And and so we, and I suppose that's what also comes from expanding access, right? Is that we've expanded access, and I think that's that's an amazing thing, and it's really, really empowering and necessary. But without thinking of what that actually then means about what is who, required, what's required then to provide the, the adequate support that, yeah. uh, to the students that you've expanded access to, it seems really unfair to me that we've uh, opened up opportunities for a lot of students, but without taking into consideration what their context actual and their actual situation. circumstances are and so um, we then overload students with all sorts of extra burdens you know and the mm. mental health consequences of it are horrific I mean um, we you are seeing I, I've that. seen a huge increase I mean I've been teaching in some way or form um, since I was a student myself at UCT in the mid-2000s uh, so I've been teaching for the better part of sort of, of 10 to 12 years and I've seen an increase in mental health issues mm. uh, amongst our students, a huge rise in depression, Stress, anxiety, depression, yeah. uh, and a lot of it is linked to, to circumstance. Oh, that's awful, yeah. Um, you're a doctor of politics, is that correct? A yes. recently graduated doctor mm -hmm. of politics at the University of Pretoria mm -hmm. now. Um, maybe just, because uh, I understand your, 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 your PhD thesis was around South Africa at the United Nations, specifically at the United Nations Security Council, is that mm, correct? Yes. And what was that, two, two terms we've had it at the... It was two terms that we've had. We're how currently in our third term. Oh, we are a member of the yes. Security Council now again. Yes. Um, maybe just give us a little bit of uh, an idea of why you chose, the, why, why you found that as, a, as an area of study, and a little bit about how it works with the Security Council, because I understand... You have the perm five permanent members and then a rotating, is it, um, how many? How, how it's 10 rotating seats. And 10 so rotating, so it's 15 in all. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, maybe just... Uh, so, I came to this topic actually while I was doing my master's in 2008. And South Africa at that stage was in its second year of its first term in the Security Council. And had made a number of kind of controversial decisions uh, against, voted against a resolution to discuss human rights abuses in Myanmar, um, mm. had voted or had tried to water down and actually had successfully watered down a resolution about uh, nuclear development in, in Iran. Um, and so it, it had been very controversial and and I decided to look at that first term at some of the decisions and try to make sense of, of, of the most controversial decisions and why right. uh, South sort Africa voted trying, in that way. Trying to understand the path that South Africa was trying to walk. Exactly. Um, and what did you find? And, and what I found was that there was a, there appeared to be a misunderstanding or a contradiction between the way in which people expected South Africa to vote and to act in the Security Council and the role that South African policymakers saw themselves playing hmm. uh, in the Security Council. And basically that what was expected was that South Africa would vote in support of all kind of human rights, human rights type of resolutions, type resolutions for and the Palestinians and against the, uh, against the Chinese and Tibet or whatever. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, and what actually you know, arose was that South Africa saw its role 
particularly in the Security Council, as being one of balancing the the unequal power dynamics in the Security Council. So the Security Council Between the five permanent members so the, and the ten And the ten rotating. rotating members. So the Security Council has five permanent members, ten rotating members. Of the ten rotating seats, uh, they are given to... They set out for particular re regions. So uh, Africa has three rotating seats. Um, uh -huh. The one rotating seat for Africa is pretty much always given to West Africa. Uh, and then the other two then circulate. So that's more Francophone Africa then, or, well, or sort or of a mix of a those? A mix of Francophone okay. and. and or that does not restrict and it to Okay. Um, and then the other two seats then rotate between Central, uh, Eastern, and Southern. And so, and what happens with the Africa group is actually quite organized in the sense that there's very little competition about once a region, so once Southern Africa has decided that Botswana or South Africa or Namibia is going, going to, to get be the, the representative, seat, then the whole Africa group agrees with that, and then that's the country that's okay. put forward. Uh, and and the voting at the UN level for that seat is pretty much a formality. Uh -huh. um, with the other, like with Europe, for example, there's often a lot of inter... More dynamic. Uh, there's a lot of competition. And so you'll often have, or with Asia, last year uh, for the vote for the countries to take up their seats in 2019, there was a sort of stiff competition between, um, if I remember correctly, it was Indonesia and um, India uh, to take up... To have up that, one of those... Yes. One of the Asian seats. To have one of the Asian seats. Um, right. And so, and so, yes, so there's... Um, there's a lot of competition with other regions, whereas with South Africa, uh, it's pretty much, or with Africa, once it's decided at the regional level, so then that's pretty much a done deal. So does that say, or what does that say about our regional bodies then? Does that say we've got quite sort of strong regional and continental um, institutions like SADC, for example, here in the south, or I know that there's the West African whatever and the East African uh, I don't. I don't know the names of those uh, conglomerates um, or whatever you call them. Those confederations, and then we have the AU, of course. Yes. Um, so, is there quite th that uniformity? I mean, of th of thought. What does that sort of indicate to you then? I think that look. It just indicates. I think it's a it's a result of practice over time more than it is a an end of custom over the past sort of 40 or 50 years that uh, African states have have had have existed as independent entities within the United Nations uh -huh. um, more than more than an indication of being particularly well organized okay. um, in terms of the African Union or any of right. the regional economic communities. Because I know, for example, when um, Minister Nkosisana Dlamini Zuma was, was she the head of the EU, mm -hmm. AU, uh, yes, that was, was quite a controversial sort of period, wasn't it? I mean, uh, was there a, think, a thinking that sort of South Africa bullied itself into that position or something like that and that she Certainly. didn't really then ever get much done on top of that so and look in, I mean and how do you see South Africa's position in Africa then if we can shift to the continent or at a political level I think South Africa's position in the continent has declined in the past kind of 10 years uh, partly from uh, the certainly the previous government under President Jacob Zuma just stepping away from a lot of the responsibility that uh, his predecessor had taken on in Tell the continent. Yeah. yeah, because uh, he was quite a... He, was he saw himself as quite a diplomat. I mean, and Zimbabwe a, and then... as an African statesman. CAR, I think. Um, I mean, he was all over the place. He was, he? yeah. So, I mean, South Africa had been involved in uh, mediation or in peacekeeping. Oh, Sudan, in, I think it was. Yes, Sudan, Zimbabwe, yeah. DRC, yeah. Um, Burundi... Somalia, mm. 
And, and we'd sent military forces to support the UN in a number of those countries as well, I yes, think, hadn't we as well? We had, we had uh, peacekeepers in Sudan, in DRC, in Burundi, in... Mm. Um, in a number CAR, of countries, in CAR, we were we're not sure what they were doing there. In fact, yes, at we had one stage. we had we had military in CAR, but we'd been involved in in mediation also in a number of countries, also Madagascar. Hmm. Um, oh yes, I mean the, the ex-president was living here, or still does, or I mean I don't, I've lost sort of track of that one. Indeed, and so he was living here, and then he went back to contest the. They had another election uh, last year in December, November, December, and went back to contest which he lost and so I'm not sure if he's still mm, there or if he's right, come yeah, back to South yeah, Africa. Yeah. Uh, but you know what you saw under the Zuma administration was a, a real withdrawal from providing the kind of uh, moral but also the financial leadership uh, mm. and resources of the of the continent's institutions that you had under under Tabombegi. Hmm. And so you had a lot more of a ad hoc approach to diplomacy on the continent. So there were some areas that uh, former President Zuma was actively involved in, like the Central African Republic, um, was pretty involved in protecting uh, the Burundi president, uh, Pierre Nkurunziza in his attempt to take on an additional term, right. um, and so he's still the president. Mm. But you didn't have the kind of underwriting of the continent's governance institutions like the African Union um, and other programs like NEPAD that you had under the Beki government. Mm. And so there is a sense that... Uh, South Africa has lost a lot of that kind of influence hmm. in the continent. And the big question is whether or not the current president is has ambitions to rebuild that um, in, 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 in the, and to rebuild South Africa's role in the rest of Africa in, hmm. in that way. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the... Issue around Gosazana Lamini Zuma and her running for to be the chair of the AU Commission uh, was one example of the way in which South Africa was not being seen as playing a, the kind of leadership role that was expected to play in Africa. Uh, a lot of countries opposed Lamini Zuma's running for that position because they said, well, you know, the kind of what what practice, what custom says is that, well, you should have the strongest countries on the continent not want to take on the formal leadership positions in the organization, but to provide their leadership in other ways. Uh -huh. um, and then you had a lot of division between the French and the Anglophone um, yeah. countries and the yeah. sense that it was that the that the that France was playing a role in influencing Jeez, the decisions yeah. of of the Francophone countries. And I always say, you know, that on the continent, uh, South Africa's biggest strategic rival on the continent is France. It's hmm. not actually one of the other countries, uh, one of the other countries or on China, the continent. Yeah. Because there's a sense that the French are continue to hold on to their colonial links. And... Yeah to perpetuate their influence yeah, sure. um, regardless of the interest of the continent itself. itself yeah. mm -hmm. I was amazed. I was in Dakar a couple of um, years ago now and I saw a French fire brigade engine like from the Paris fire brigade or whatever driving with all the guys in their lovely shiny helmets and I was told that, yeah, that's the fire brigade that looks after the French properties yeah. in Dakar. Yes. I mean, it's like, uh, and, and they have that uh, funny uh, French, the, the, the franc, the currency, the currency for the franc. West African franc or whatever. Indeed. Um, how did you get involved? You, you say, you, you, you told me you, you, you're 34, so you, you're young mm -hmm. um, and you're a, you're, you've been teaching for so many years. How did you 
get interested in in teaching? Do you come from a, a family of academics, or was it what what sparked your interest in teaching and in politics in particular? No, I mean my parents. Both my parents were well were politically involved with the UDF and and that kind of thing. Okay. Um, where, where did you grow up? In Joburg. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm born and bred in Johannesburg. Uh, actually born in Sibukeng. Okay. Um, um, and I was born in Sibukeng just after the... Um, I'm trying to do the, the maths now, but I can't. It's so state of emergency. State of emergency, yeah. just before the state of emergency. Yeah, so there'd been the boycotts. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, so there'd been the rate boycotts in Sibukeng, and there was the big... Um, protest and riots in Sibukeng uh, from, I think, August or July 84. Mm. Uh, and I was born, born in November. That. I was born Man. into that. <laughs> <laughs> I was born into that. Uh, my mom tells a story of uh, how, and so the area that we lived in Sibukeng was sort of ground zero. Of <laughs> I was going to say things. something silly then. But, um, but my mother was heavily pregnant with me. I was born in November. She's heavily pregnant with me. And one of our neighbors, who was, was also heavily pregnant, and they were we were both babies were due in November. Uh, and they woke up one morning, and the, there was a soldier each yard. Shit, had I remember those photographs. They sort of just yes. cordoned off the whole bloody street. Exactly. I had friends each of mine who were involved had, in that Each shit. yard had a soldier in, in it. And so my mum says, and my mother and I, one of the things that we both share is that we love our sleep, so we sleep <laughs> in. <laughs> and so Me too. my mum was, <laughs> my dad woke up first and so like, opened the, the kitchen window. There's and a dude there. There's a dude. With a gun. <laughs> and with this other family, it was the other way around. So the wife woke up but, and she went into labor. And her baby was born in September <laughs> instead My of goodness. November. Um, Did she manage to get to the hospital? <laughs> she managed to get... Past the bloody uh, yeah. cordon. Uh, and my mum yeah. says about it now, you know, she looks back and she's like, this, this soldier, this, it was a kid who must have been mm. like 17, yeah. 18, 19, yeah. uh, with this big gun in the car, in, yeah. in their yard. Mm. Um, and so that's what I, that's what I was born into. Uh, and what did your parents do? I mean, what were they my, professionally? My father was a Methodist minister. Okay. Who had stopped working for the church actually by the time that I was born, but uh, he. But he was an ordained. He was an ordained Methodist minister who oh goodness, was because that Methodist church was very active, wasn't it? Very, very active, and he was the. Um, he got posted to Soweto to Orlando West Methodist Church in 1977, January 77. He arrived mm. uh, after 76. Yeah. And um, and by that stage, I mean. So it was still basically in state of emergency. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think it never really stopped from never there. Never stopped. Did it? Yeah, no. and there I were mean, kids. It just sort of waves of. And there were lots of kids leaving the country, and so he used to. Um, he worked with the ANC underground, and so used to the kids who were on their way out would stay in the belfry. Oh, that was their last stop, last before, night. Yeah, their last night, and then he would late at night in his collar, then drive them to the border. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> what a thing. <laughs> and because he was a sort of domini, yeah. uh, there was suspicion. There was some respect. Was some, yeah. um, he, could, he could have Traveled access Traveled fairly a lot freely, more. yeah. Um, but, you and know, your mum then? What was and my mum was... Um, my mum actually worked at the bank. She was okay. a, uh, She started working at Standard Bank in the... As the capitalists had realized that they needed to tap in build a, some kind of black middle class in order to mm, yeah. uh, and so a few limited opportunities sort of opened because uh, my mother had gone to university at the University of Zululand oh, um, and, yes and she in 76 Whoa. and they got kicked out yeah. June 76 because they organized you know they they, they were they protesting and boycotting. Um, yeah. And so, and my mom was from Orlando West. Uh, her her best friend, childhood friend, is Mbuisa Makubu, who's holding Hector Peterson. Crikey, Moses. He grew up across, literally across the road um, from Whoa. my grandparents' house. Um, and it's crazy because he was in the same year 
he and my mother had both finished uh, matric in 74, 75, and he hadn't been able to go to university. And so what basically happened was that the high school kids uh, were planning this protest and primary school kids were planning this this march. this march in for 76 and he had so his he lived with his grandmother which was opposite my grandparents house mm. but he was walking back from his he'd spent the night at his mother's house which is near where the Hector Peterson Museum is now right um and he'd spent the night there and was now walking back to his grandmother's house and got then caught up he in just got caught up protest get out and i never knew that saw this kid fall in front of be shot and did the logical thing pick the kid up and was running now they were going to get into a car to get to take him to to the hospital um, and, and Sam Zimmer spotted, you know, d- took this incredible photograph. Mm. And then he, the police started looking for him and being like, what were you doing there? And I suppose because he became the symbol and that mm. photograph became mm. the symbol uh, of, of that whole struggle. Um, and so he eventually had to leave. Mm. Uh, sure. And went in, and my mom tells the most amazing story of how the day that he left, he, my mom was going, was sent by her mom to go buy bread or something, and she was walking up the street, and he came after her, and he was like, "Jab, no, let me walk with you." So they walked together, and then he, at the, they got to the shops, and he said, "Won't you buy me an ice cream or a sweet or something with the change?" And my mom was like, "No, you know how my mother is with her change," and he said, "Look." You want to do this. And so she bought him an ice cream. Hmm. They went back home. And then she says, a few minutes later, he was walking up the street. Their street was on a bit of a slope. And um, and he said, no, I'm going to go for a while, but we'll see you soon. And so she just has this image of him walking up the street with a backpack. Um, and that mm. was the last she saw of My him goodness. because he's now, we don't know what happened. He went mm. from here to Botswana, he went from South Africa to Botswana um, and spent some time in Botswana and got engaged and to a wonderful woman and uh, who was pregnant by the time he left. Mm. And he went up to, uh, I think, Tanzania and to Nigeria. Well, the last we know of him was that he was in Nigeria and not very well um Hmm. and yeah and so we still don't know what's happened to him Um, so so that was your sort of upbringing was a very political politicized home and obviously parents who'd been educated who saw value in in Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, Mm -hmm. tertiary education but um then politics was which just I was always really interested in it, and I suppose because that's what I grew up with. You know, we we left Sibukeng and moved to Spreadview, which is on the East Rand, very close to Katlehong. Um and that's where I we moved there. I think when I was like five or six, and that was in the time of the heavy violence from yeah. 1990 to and of the NC, yeah. you know, and banning the NC. So do you have you have mem- clear memories of that? Yeah. Police and tear gas and shooting and shooting and um, and you know getting home to driving through you know bobs and protests and necklacing and fires and uh, people um, you know men running away from the hostels and coming to like camp out in our yard. Um, So fully in the middle of it, and and my parents had made the decision to send me to private school um, in 1991 when the schools integrated, the government schools integrated. So you were part of that first sort of generation. Well, my dad said he didn't want me to be an experiment of the National Party, Mm. and so they sent me to a school that had been integrated for quite a long time, um, or for about 
for a few years by yes. that stage. Yeah. Uh, and so, and it was in sort of leafy Parktown, um, Parktown West, next to like Westcliff. And so that's where I would go to school every day and then go. Such a surreal, drive so proper home. two worlds, schizophrenic yes, kind of. Completely schizophrenic. Um, and. My mum at that stage was working at Stanbank and Elof Street. And so, and because my parents sort of were linked into, um, uh, were tied into a lot of the other uh, political conversation, if there was going to be a boycott or, um, um, or a stay away or some yeah. kind of action, then my mum would tell, would phone the headmistress and say, look, they, it's not safe for the kids to go into township. So we all were paired with a white family. All the oh, black wow. kids in the school were paired with a white family that we would okay. then st- spend and the nights with. Or yeah, so you'd have some of your uniform there and whatever. Oh, um, and we've all talked about how, what a trip it was because, you know, as a child, you don't know that you're growing up differently or lacking things. Um, and so suddenly going to these people's homes in Melrose and these fancy tree-lined proper suburbs, white proper affluence. white affluent, rich white people, um, with swimming pools and um, was such a real, being exposed very early on to the starkness of the inequality mm. uh, of, that we lived in in this country, but at the same time, feeling so grateful that you could still go to school, you know, because mm. there were a lot of places where we, where we, as the black girls lived, whether it was in Katlewong or Spreadview or, um, or Soweto, where, yeah. where education had basically broken stopped down. and broken down, and yeah. so that you could go to school. Um, and, and on top of that, that maelstrom of violence yeah. on, uh, as well. Mm. And that yeah. we could... What, what do you sort of take from that experience, that sort of schizophrenia? If I, can, I mean, what do, you, what, what, you, what do you try to bring to your teaching, I suppose, um, that, that comes out of that experience? I think for me, the, the biggest lesson for me was that all your experiences matter and that there is no, no one is a, no one has the monopoly on, on knowledge or on, um, on knowing in the world because having this kind of schizophrenic experience of of, of knowing uh, how different people were living, and the racism, and the racism in, endemic in that, and realizing how many of my that you know pretty much all the white girls I went to school didn't know that, and so they would know what was in our books and things, but there was this huge really, n- they had no clue. They had about no apartheid clue or about, about apartheid, about what it actually meant in a lived sense. Um, hmm. That just 15 uh, kilometers away from where they lived, people were living in de facto civil war. They had no clue. And their, their parents sheltered them so much from that. And I think that, you know... Old, you know, people that were old enough to know things uh, under apartheid did a lot of things to not know and to shield their children uh, from knowing the truth about the situation that they lived in. Mm. Um, uh, I think one of the other things, so it made me very curious about politics as well and about how it was possible for these very starkly different worlds to exist in the same place. Mm. Uh, And it gave me a very strong commitment to justice, I suppose, and to... Democracy? Yeah, to justice and to 
democracy and to making things right. Mm. Um, because I was also exposed to how arbitrary it was, you know, that the, the white girls that I went to school with were no smarter, they were no mm. more well-behaved or Girly deserving or of stability and status than, you know, you, than, you and your than me and my parents and the, and, and the people that, uh, that I lived with, you know. Mm. And so um, the arbitrariness of, of oppression and of racism really really struck you know um mm. i'm grateful to my parents that they were in as much as i learned a lot of things just from living and spending time with them uh also my dad was very big on teaching us history right the history of Plaza people or the different wars the all, all my knowledge of the frontier like wars that. of um, of how colonization took place. Mm. Um, I learned from my dad. So, yeah, so the, you're you putting up this? the land is ours. The land is ours. Yeah. Land is ours. Uh, 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 I'm going to say that again. Yes. Um, uh, who's the land is ours. South Africa's first black lawyers and the birth of constitutionalism. I'm reading this book at the moment. It is absolutely incredible. Have you read it? I have. Uh, so Tembega's a friend, actually. It, so I mean, my goodness, I just I'm, I'm so excited to read it. Yeah. So Tembega's a friend, actually. So I read a few of the drafts. There's a the lot about before. the Eastern Cape in, um, in that, and yeah. uh, I do recommend anyone who's interested in our history um, to to read this book. So that was a lot of the history that I grew up with, and mm. I'm very grateful for yeah. for that. So yeah. So that's how I became interested in politics, mm. and um, and. What? decided to and then in high school was a high school debater and one of the things that we'd often have to do that we know we debate heavily sort of political um topics uh both this is now sort of the early 90s this is, this when, is when did you 90s. leave school i left school 2002 so late oh, 90s, okay all right early 2000s um okay. and then and you're still in your private school here in uh, yeah Okay. And so I did <laughs> well, a lot that's of. It's good that they're allowing those sort of discussions. I yes. Encouraging those sort of discussions. Yeah. I mean, were they was, quite heated in, or they. They were quite heated. And look, and it was in particular enclaves, right? So it was within the context of the debating society oh, that I we see, were having right. some of these debates. Yeah. Um, and so I decided to go to university and to study politics and economics. Mm. Uh, UCT had a PPE, a politics, philosophy, and economics degree. Yes. Um, and yeah, and so that's. But was academia then your your p chosen path from an early stage, or what did you think you were going to do with those? I suppose skills? I, th I, th I thought like every debating child that I was going to be a lawyer, mm. um, but I didn't want to do an LB straight off the bat. So, um, but I'd always enjoyed learning and teaching. Um, and so I remember at like five years old trying to teach my brother how to read. <laughs> he was two. <laughs> I had just learned how to read and I was convinced like this, this is the way to do it. <laughs> um, oh, that's brilliant. And Beautiful. so I, and then in my third year at UCT, I applied for a t tutoring position uh, to tutor um, economics, macroeconomics one. And I got it, I got the job, and I loved teaching. Mm. Uh, I really enjoyed Especially it. Especially in that intimate sort of space, yes. not a massive lecture hall, but just like 10 kids in a room who are all sort of quite eager and keen. Yeah, and I mm. really enjoyed it. And it's so weird because, and that was 2000, and took my first tutorial, 2006. Um, and I have... There are people now that I still know or that were in my Your that class and my tats um, mm. who are doing really well. So I always feel kind of <laughs> a little little stake in their <laughs> success. Um, well, that's beautiful. I suppose that's one of the great rewards of teaching, isn't it? I mean, it's it's th that that um, 
the progress that you see or, and, and, and the interactions that you have. Completely. Um, it's, it is so rewarding. And mm. I, I mean, I did my honors, I did my master's in international relations at UCT. And then I decided that, you know, I was sick of being at the university. And so I went off and I worked as a researcher for an organization called EDASA, which oh, is no, now EDASA, closed. EDASA, yes, yeah. Um, but I worked for EDASA in Cape Town in their uh, political information and monitoring service. So looked, looking, doing a lot of monitoring of parliament and right. um, different pieces of legislation that were going through the parliamentary committee system. Uh, mm. And that's how I started working on the protection of information bill which, oh wow! Yeah, we're still waiting for which somebody waiting to sign, for off. sign it. Yeah, the protection of state I had that discussion actually with Pippa Green just a couple of weeks back. In yeah. Fact, it's, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know if anything will happen. I don't know what what will happen with that. Um, and I, I ended up building. As she up said, it, she feels that the president probably has other uh, priorities right now. He has other priorities, and the thing is that you know once. And to be able to deal with it in any way, it needs to be signed. So, mm. and and once it, and the president, what he can do actually before he signs it, can decide to uh, refer it to the constitutional court yes. for further, for them to decide whether or not it He's should go back of, to yeah. parliament or not, which I think would probably be the best way for for things to go, hmm. uh, or he could sign it. And at the point that it was signed, then uh, civil society could challenge it in yeah, court. Yeah, if the Constitutional um, Court doesn't immediately throw it out anyway. Co- exactly. Which is some um, people do suspect might happen. I think that is probably likely. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so that's how I started working on... So I worked on that and uh, worked with the Right to Know campaign, so was on the first working group of the Right to Know campaign hmm. uh, around So sort around of continuing your parents' uh, yeah. Yeah. Activism in civil society. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Which was awesome. I, I, hmm. I loved it and I, um, and, and I enjoyed getting, uh, being that involved. And, but, and a lot of my work actually with civil society in that respect with Right to Know campaign was doing lots of training and uh, awareness and advocacy with community groups that we were working with. Um, because it then turned out that this wasn't actually just a piece of legislation that was interesting to, uh, or that threatened the media. The media, no, but they were and whistleblowers, whistleblowers, and, under threat um, and you know, community groups that were interested in like their housing lists. You know, hmm. we realized how. You know, even though the right to access information is enshrined in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, uh, it is so difficult for ordinary people to get information out of the state that mm. affects their lives. Mm. So uh, everything from uh, housing lists, so, you know, people are on lists to get RDP housing, yeah. and those, it's, the whole process is so process. opaque. Yeah. Um, and so everything from that to no to getting information about schools or healthcare mm. um, or even you know through the criminal justice system you know about getting proper information uh, about family members who are being tried or uh, who are in prison and and that kind of thing and so it turned out that this. The access to, manipu- to to information, but then also the manipulation of um, state security agencies to spy on people mm. w- is was such a common practice. Well, we see this report now that came out recently. I mean, it's absolutely like the guys are completely out of control. It exactly. Seems. I mean, I haven't read the report in detail, but certainly some fairly it seems firm evidence that there's almost like a parallel state structure yeah. working for a particular part of the ANC even not even the government indeed kind of something like that and it's a continuation of um i always talk about how you know the path dependence of the south african state is fascinating to me that there are so many practices and uh, ways of doing things from Apartheid that inherited and that are inherited, you know. Yeah. And one of those is the way in which the security infrastructure operates. Well, this, I mean, is that uh, we've changed too little mm. of how the those structures, secu- those structures are, are used, operate, how they manipulate, how they report. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, well, that's a whole, I suppose, a discussion for another day. Um, just, uh, I want to try and get us a little bit more focused yes. now on our kind of political landscape as we lead into mm -hmm. our final phase of the of the of the election cycle. I suppose May the eighth is our election, so it's six. I'm six leaving short, six weeks or something. Yeah. Like that. Um, the um, Economist Intelligence Unit uh, rates ranks South Africa 40 out of 167 countries on their democracy index. We're a flawed democracy according to their their definition. And I don't want to get into too much of those sort of details, but I mean, you worked in civil society in Adasi, you got a good sense of our parliamentary structures. Um, what is the state, what, what do you think is the state of our political institutions, um, both sort of at the government level, parliamentary level, mm. and then at the party political level, if that's not too broad a, a kind of question. Well, at the government or at the state I'm level? I'm sort of put everything in one sentence there. Well, at the state level, I think that our institutions have proven to be a lot more resilient uh, and a lot sturdier than, um, than I think any of us could have realized, right? That the... Zuma administration and look and and there's a lot of things that happened under Jacob Zuma that are not unique to his time right that had started already before then um had put a lot of strain on our institutions so uh whether that is for me the criminal justice system I was going to say um, the courts yeah the the court the courts have have held up but certainly you know you saw a wholesale kind of decimation of the, about the NPA, NPA and the scorpions being disbanded um, scorpions being disbanded the mm. police being weakened uh mm. and the intelligence so criminal intelligence um within the police being that capacity being weakened mm. uh, we've seen a lot of that happen and the institutions i think have held up a lot better than um than perhaps would have been expected in a different under a different system i think mm. that the the kinds of laws that we've put in place, uh, some of the infrastructure that we have in terms of uh, the, the court system, but also some of the checks and balances that we have, uh, have meant that, yes, things were very badly manipulated and very badly damaged, but, but there's something to work from in order to recover. Foundation. Yeah. Uh, mm. And what we've seen, I think that our parliament is still has so much potential to play, you know, if you think of Parliament's role as being representation of the people uh, holding the executive to account and making laws, our Parliament's been really good at making laws. Um, and if you look at our committee system, so basically a piece of legislation gets introduced by the executive into parliament, and then there will be some, and then there the will be a will committee that will look into it. And our committees have been really good at balancing the excesses of the executive. So the Protection of Information Bill was an example of how the state, the executive wanted a particular outcome from that legislation. But through the committee process, um, you had that legislation be fundamentally changed by the time that it got out of parliament. It's still not adequate, not great, but that delaying the ability to delay to really allow for civil society input to really unpack everything mm. um, that was implicated in that legislation, delayed it, and I think, you know, is the reason why it still has not been passed. Right. Um, and so there is an ability for also opposition parties to actively influence uh, lawmaking in this country that you see in very few other places. And I think mm. that's one of the strengths of our parliament. What our parliament still isn't great at is adequately representing Hold people and holding the, the executive, executive to uh, account. Some people would say, um, I mean, I think there was even, wasn't there a court ruling that par parliament had failed in its duty yes, at some point? Yes, um, to do that around, around Gandler. Yeah, exactly, around the spending. Um, and so, Jason Candler, that seems such a long time ago. It seems such a long time ago. It seems so innocent as well. Um, <laughs> and so, they, 
And so I think that, you know... So Parliament needs to do what then? Well, so part of the issues with Parliament, and so this is me getting to your question about party institutions, mm. part of the reason why our Parliament is so weak is because of the way... is because our political parties are so unaccountable. I mm. think there's a lot that is... But this party is, list system, yes, lack of constituency party, representatives. Lack of constituency representation. Yeah. But I think that even if we had a, uh, a constituency-based system, it wouldn't... Improve that. Improve until we've dealt with the culture of our political parties. Hmm. South African political parties in law are basically treated like private entities. Actually, they are less accountable or less open and transparent by law than a JSE-listed company. Um, in a terms JSE, of in terms of their funding, in terms of yes, a JSE listed company needs to, you know, make all its financials available, uh, all of the internal processes, yeah. um, and then all the additional uh, ethical and ethical codes of conduct, yes. like with the king. Well, DA and Delil, I mean, was a, a, a great example of no one really knew what the hell was going on, and still, I don't to this day have a very good. Exactly. Whereas our political parties, their operations are incredibly opaque. Mm. The other thing is that there's funding a lot is of an issue. funding is an issue. So we've now got the Party Funding B Act that's now been passed, uh, mm. but that hasn't been implemented it's yet. Not and and it, it's been signed, uh -huh. but uh, it's not functional yet. So. Okay. Um, and that, I think, is going to open up, and I hope that what uh, civil society decides to take up from the Party Funding Act is then to use that as a way to start interrogating the internal systems of political parties. Hmm. Because uh, the Party Funding Act is going to make provision for all political parties to get a certain amount of funding from the state. Yes. And so is that based on their representation in Parliament? No, so this will be an equal division. Oh, wow. Yes. Jeez. Um, Bonto so Exactly. Uh, and so what that's going to do is it then says, well, if you're getting state funding, then you we must, must be, be able, we must be accountable. Mm. Um, because there's a lot of political parties, it's not clear whether the political parties, for example, are their internal constitutions uh, consistent with the national constitution? Hmm. We don't know. Uh, are, okay. And are they party's internal processes, their disciplinary processes. Also aligned um, to our... Are they aligned to the Constitution? We don't know. Um, are the political parties different uh, systems of putting people onto a list uh, to, you know, to then candidates onto a list, as we've seen the EFF, the DA, and the ANC all release their political party, their, their lists for this election. And there are all sorts of names on there, and it's not mm. clear what the process is that each political party takes to mm. get there. And those processes are completely opaque. There's nothing in the law that requires political parties to be transparent about that. In mm. fact, the one political party that we seem to have a lot, we know a lot about, is the ANC because they keep taking each other to court. And so that's how, as all the different factions are taking each other to court, then we're being able to the sort process of like that they're the complaining and figure about. out different processes. Mm. But um, so the unaccount, so our political parties, we have a very we have a political culture within our parties of not being accountable. And mm. yet, we then expect those people, once they are in actual leadership, to, to operate also, differently mm. according to the national rules. And it doesn't work like that. And, hence, and so we yeah. need to drive a campaign of forcing political parties to be more open, more transparent, to be accountable. Um, you know, what are their... I remember when I was at Adasa, we had a project about the ethical... the ethics processes of political parties. Do they have integrity processes? Any, even any training any around training, that? We couldn't figure it out. A really? lot of political parties wouldn't open up and talk about what their systems were. And this was in 2008. 
eight and nine, I think, is when the research was done. Um, and 10 years later, we don't know any more mm. now than we did then. And mm. so I really think that one of the weakest points of our democratic system is our political parties themselves. Sure. Uh, and, you know, that's not a uniquely South African problem. I think globally you are seeing the, the wow. crisis of democracy globally is largely a crisis of political parties. Um, and yet in a representative democracy, political parties are essential, right? Because that's what you vote Those for. Are the structure, Those are the That's the process structures. by which democracy operates. And so um, we really need to think very carefully um, and interrogate what kind of political parties do we want, what kind of political parties do we need uh, for our democracy to succeed. Mm. Uh, because no matter what the changes will be in terms of rehabilitating the institutions of state, right? So, you know, fixing the criminal justice system, putting um, skilled public servants into the public administration yeah. at various levels, um, changing the way, the culture, the, the way in which the public administration works. The functioning bureaucracy. Exactly. That's having not politically a aligned. Exactly. Or beholden to, I mean, that was one of the weird, one of the f most frightening things in all this chaos that we've endured over the last couple of years and even over the last couple of months with all these um, commissions of inquiry and et cetera, et cetera was I think it was David Mabuza the other day saying, well, all those people that don't get on the list, don't worry, we're going to deploy you. So it's kind of what, like, Parliament is, is, is a job then. It's not a service to the, the country or the party. It's just a means to earn money. Exactly. Is what I got out of that. Exactly. And I found that quite disturbing. It is very disturbing. And... The idea even that you can just deploy people to positions in the state regardless of what the need of the position is. I thought the rebirth of the ANC would mean a movement away from... But I suppose that points to the sort of... I'm going to be touching on this in a couple of other discussions in the near future, so I don't want to get too bogged down in it, yeah. but it just does show the sort of... Um, the very unstable nature of the ANC right now, or at least the, 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 the very weak position of the Tumamina project? Oh, yes. Um, and look, and I suppose the Tumamina project... <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, what is your... Maybe we can just end on that semi-depressing uh, note. The, the ANC's problem is the ANC. Um, the I said the other day they were our greatest hope and our greatest threat. Yes, and I'm not even sure about the greatest hope. I think mm. that the ANC is as a as a dominant party. You know, you've got this theory of dominant party systems, um, and as a dominant party is in decline and has been in decline for a number of years, and. What's b and the ANC is basically cannibalizing itself. People join the ANC in order to uh, have access to political positions and so much and of the financial, the, benefits, and the financial that benefits that come with that. And so, so much of what the ANC's purpose is and how the ANC is operating right now is to just manage interests uh, within the party and to deal with internal party dynamics and issues. So the Unity Project is to manage uh, the divisions and the contestation within the party. So the ANC isn't actually thinking about South Africa. No. Um, and the ANC's leadership... Uh, can't really think about South Africa because so much of its time is occupied on managing things to keep the party together. And so, um, which is why Nkalima Mutlante has said this, that you actually need the ANC to lose power so that, the, mm -hmm. so that there is no benefit in being a member of the ANC. Because an ANC with no power... It's just a party. It's just a party. 
and if the ANC is just a party, then it must. Then you you almost naturally then purge the people that were just in the party in order to have access to resources. Mm. And then the ANC can try to figure out well, what is what it is actually? It? What are the principles? What does it stand for? Mm. Um, and sure, yeah, because. I mean, some people are, people I'd, I'm talking to, uh, even actually ANC members, because I was saying, you know, how can ANC in this context even stand up as a legitimate, given all the the, the, the revelations of these? Uh. Okay, no one, as, as Ace or somebody said, you know, no one's gone to jail. Okay, well done. But I mean... There's a cloud hanging over so many people. Um, how can the ANC even stand up and market itself as the sort of legitimate solution to all our problems that it's had 25 years to resolve? And st I mean, if you look at the manifesto today to the NDP from how many years mm -hmm. ago to the manifesto before that, it's all kind of the same stuff. Um, but... He's saying, yeah, Nick, no, that's right, yeah, you're right. But you and I and many other people, thinking, informed people, will still now go out and vote for the ANC. So it's almost like that's the biggest threat to our democracy, in a way, is the democratic system <laughs> that's allowing the ANC to maintain 60% of the polls without, with, with failure. Exactly. Um and if I can be so blunt. Yes. And, and look, and I think that the ANC will only be able to continue with that. This is the last election that the ANC is going to get away with that. Hmm. Uh, the demo, I mean, as it is, the, the demographic between the ages of 18 and 29 is 21% of the voters' role. Um, and by the time we get to the next election in 2024, the majority of the people on the voters' roll will have been born after 1990. And that's going to be, you know, so it's people who don't have a historical loyalty to the ANC, who know more about the ANC in government than they knew of the ANC in before struggle. in struggle. And so... And not delivering in government, you Exactly, mean. and not delivering in government. Um, and so that's the record that the ANC will then be judged on. Hmm. And so it will be a lot more difficult for those people to continue voting for the ANC. Um, and or to vote in you know, or to cast their first vote for for the ANC, and I think that that is um, going to be a good thing for the country because if we want to, I still think that democracy is. I know we glorify sort of Rwanda and Kagame and whatever, and people globally, I think, are in a position where they want a big man to fix things, um, and I don't think that that is the best option for. No most places in the world, but certainly not for South Africa. I think that we need an active democracy. Solid Stephen Friedman parties, has just written a book. Exactly. Stephen Friedman's just written a book called Power in Action and he makes the case for collective action. Um, that we need a democracy that you know, one of the challenges that our democracy hasn't been working optimally because ordinary people um, have a great deal of difficulty having their grievances heard you know that's why South Africans protest because yeah. it's the best way to get government to respond to you mm. um, and so we need to be we need to develop the systems of collective action of people being able to organize and then of having their grievances actually responded to by the government so we need to strengthen our democratic processes to enable that and to allow and the that. institution of the state the bureaucracies exactly, of the state to then be able to respond hmm. yeah sit and Bila, thanks so much for your time this morning Thank i'm you. glad we finally got to I'm meet i'm so glad we finally got to meet and to uh, have this conversation uh, great stuff thanks yeah. so much thank you cheers
I hope you enjoyed that overview from Sitembile. I found it quite fascinating, um, particularly where she thinks we are as a democracy, the state of our institutions, the strength of our institutions. Um, I suppose we can acknowledge the point she makes about the opaqueness, perhaps, of some of our political parties and their processes, the weakness of some of the political leadership, but also acknowledge the checks and balances that do exist, that are built into our political system, and that they do seem to work, at least. We live in such a highly fluid socio-political and economic environment, um, it's quite difficult sometimes to keep up, you know, revelations every day with all these commissions of inquiry and various other reports uh, that are coming out. So it's sometimes quite difficult to keep track, but I hope you are finding these discussions interesting and uh, look forward to talking to you next week. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You can also subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers.